Thank you for joining us for the Local Church Podcast. At Local Church, we value each person's unique experience with faith and hope this message impacts you today. In the book of Matthew chapter 28, we get the the, sort of the culmination of the ministry of Christ. It's the last chapter of um, really the longest gospel uh, in the book of Matthew. And we get this moment where Jesus um, addresses the crowds and his disciples. And it's, he says this, he says, this is Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Listen to these words. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. When Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20 says, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We come to our final session. Well, we've got a, um, uh, actually our final session next week where we're going to present to you our discipleship plan for the year and wrap up a few things that we missed in the last seven weeks. But as the seventh sermon in an eight-week series, this is kind of it, the penultimate moment. And we want to focus today on this moment where Jesus speaks very clearly, candidly, directly, and says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, he says. Pretty much everyone Make them disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey the things I've taught you. But therefore, go and make disciples. I want to talk to you today on the topic of put me in coach. Put me in coach. Father, we pray, God, that you would bless our time, be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Edify and amplify this word we ask. Amen. Of all of the events at the Olympics, not the Winter Olympics, but at the Summer Olympics, of all the events, one of the most overlooked events, one that gets a little bit of kudos, but not too much, has got to be the 4 by 100 meter relay. I mean, this is a masterpiece event. The way that they prepare and receive the handoff is like a fine art. The person waits, and I don't know if you've noticed, but on the track, they can only receive the baton in between two lines. So they've got their tra- their lane, but then there's a line here and a line in front of them, and they can they've got they start there and they start to build up, build up, build up pace, and they want to receive the baton from the person who's at full pace, 100 meter sprint pace, and because it's about a it's actually it's not four by 100 meter relay, it's actually more like a four by 110 meter relay, because the 100 meter starts at that line, but they're going to receive it and build up their pace for the perfect moment of transition when the baton changes hands once, twice, and three times, then across the finish line. It's like a fine art. Jesus is speaking here of the biblical version of the relay race. That this is the end of a comprehensive gospel writing from Matthew that is filled with pages of his teaching and preaching, his life, his example, his exemplary role as a human being, culminating in this impressive delivery of his message 
to all believers. None of us are exempt from what Jesus is saying here. This moment here is the greatest baton exchange in human history. This moment right here is the great relay race baton handoff from one generation to another. From Jesus to us to fulfill his goal. A friend of mine, a pastor, James Murray, this week said, Christianity equals to finish what Jesus started. It's as though Moses, the law, ran the first leg. Then the prophets ran the second leg. Jesus ran the third leg and then gives us the responsibility to run the fourth. And the fourth leg of a four by 100 meter relay is called the anchor leg. And the best and fastest runner always runs the anchor. What a privilege that is. John 14 verse 12 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Another translation says, believe me, I'm in my Father and my Father is in me. If you can't believe that, believe what you see, these works. The person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things than these. Because I, on my way to the Father, am giving you the same work to do that I have been doing. You can count on it. They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is saying that because I'm going to the Father and giving you the baton and I'm leaving and I've finished my leg, my role in this race, and I'll go to the Father and he'll send the empower of the helper to you because of that, you will do greater things. Wow. I've played many sports in my life. In high school, a few key sports, uh, uh, swimming, a uh, little bit of athletics, basketball, lawn bowls, if debating was a sport. I did that too. We've all had emotions of wanting the ball in our hand and wanting to get on the court and make a difference. All of us have had those moments where we're, we're ready to go. But we've all simultaneously had those moments where we wanted to avoid eye contact with the coach for fear that he would put you in because you didn't want the ball in your hands in crunch time. Christianity can be like that, can't it? It can be like that where sometimes we're so happy to be involved and engaged, but then other times we're more than happy to spectate. In all of our Bibles, Matthew 28 comes under the heading, which is not in the original text, but the heading is added for our benefit, and it says, the Great Commission, under the heading there. What a moment. The Great Commissioning, the Great Releasing, the Great Commission that we are in partnership as co-heirs with Christ, the great releasing of his people. It's this final point that we want to make in this series, and that is simply this. Jesus is calling us to be disciples who make disciples. This is pretty significant. He didn't say, go and make decisions, go and make friends, go and make relationships. Hey, go and make networks and connections. That's not what he said. He said, go and make disciples. This is a very high standard. In fact, this is the highest of standards. That to make a disciple, I mean, it's hard to be a disciple. That Jesus says, don't just go and be a disciple. He says, go and make disciples. This needs to land for us. This needs to land in our lives. That it's the last thing that he said. You've heard of the phrase, famous last words. 
on your deathbed, you gather your friends and family, what will you say? What will you share? What will be your expression of your life? Here are some famous last words from people who've lived their lives. Beethoven said this, friends applaud, the comedy is over. Nostradamus said, tomorrow at sunrise, I shall no longer be here. Humphrey Bogart said, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. Bob Marley said, money can't buy life. Leonardo da Vinci said, I've offended both God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. Charlie Chaplin, when the priest reading him his last rite said, may the Lord have mercy on your soul. He said, why not? After all, it belongs to him. These words were Jesus' last words. Go and make disciples was his last phrase, his last sermon, his last message to his people, a compelling mission to us from the highest authority that Jesus commissioning to us clarifies this one simple truth that is lost on us so easily, that disciples make disciples, that it is inherent, and he was writing the last line of our job description, that to be a disciple is to make other disciples. We need to let that sink in. That Jesus' commission to us clarifies that a disciple is someone that replicates themselves. That to simply be a disciple does not fulfill the job description. He said, therefore, go and make disciples. That those five words should give us a moment's pause. That it's inherent in the job description that a disciple, by definition, makes other disciples. Someone who builds the life of others. Someone that helps others. Someone that leads others. A disciple is someone who pours out into the lives of others, someone who disciples others, that someone who's involved in the spiritual formation and the journey of others, that a disciple is someone who is becoming more Christ-like and helping others become more Christ-like. He didn't say, be my disciple. He'd already said that. He didn't say, follow me. He'd already said that. He said, follow me and encourage others to do the same. Be my disciple and make other versions of yourself that Jesus makes a statement that clarifies our role in the making of disciples. He's basically delegating his job. He's going to go and empower others to follow him. His Holy Spirit's going to be active throughout the earth. But he's saying, hey, I'm going to make disciples, but I want you to therefore go and do the same. We're going to work together. It's not my job to make disciples and your job to follow me. It's your job to gather those and have them follow you as you follow me. They believe there are about a 1,000 followers of Christ around about 100 AD. I might have these numbers slightly wrong, but you'll get the drift. A 100 years later, they believe that that followership had doubled. They believe that by a 1,000 years after his death, that there were 100,000 followers of Christ. But in the 1,000 years following, Christianity exploded, exponential growth. And they believe that now that number of living followers of Christ is in the realm of 2.5 billion people from one man, a group of 12, a larger group of 50, group of 500, a few thousand, a hundred thousand, within hundreds of years has ballooned to two and a half billion people. Exponential growth. Why? Because the concept of disciple making is inherent in the job description of our faith. That's every parent that's watching this today. Your home is a disciple making school that your marriage is a disciple-making, sharpening environment, 
that to every friend you're involved in the discipleship and mentoring of others, that to every group lead and team lead you're making a difference in the lives of discipling other people, that to every worker you are where you are meant to be. We talked last week about Matt Clark, the bishop. He's right where he needs to be. He's living a life that's exemplary and following Jesus. In fact, he had a phrase, he texted me the other day. He said, Levi, the challenge of being a Christian is this. We have to live, we have to encourage people to live as I live in a world that says, say what I say, not do as I do. In a world that is full of hypocrisy, judgment. Matt's trying to live a life that says, I want to be the bishop and live up to that moniker that the world is aching for authenticity. The world is aching for a clear answer to big questions. The world is aching for honesty and truth and empathy. And that is who God has called us to be. The Apostle Paul said these words, and sometimes they fall on deaf ears because they're so challenging. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. Oh, the arrogance of the man to follow him as you follow Christ. You're not perfect. He said he was the chief of all sinners at the same time. I'm the chief of all sinners, but follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, I'm not perfect, but I'm just trying to be covered in the dust of my rabbi. Follow me as I follow Christ. Here in Ottawa, where I am today, we have the largest IKEA outside of Sweden. At least that's what I heard. There might have been others that are built since I heard that in the last four years that are bigger, or it might have been a lie. But as far as I can tell, it must be true. It's huge. I'd, I'd been to IKEA in Australia. There are no IKEAs in New Zealand, the country of my birth. But when I moved to Ottawa, I went with Nadia to IKEA for the first time. And what an experience. It has a restaurant. I did have an IKEA hot dog for 99 cents, smothered it in mustard. It was outstanding. I had a small piece of cheesecake for 32 cents. I was able to feed my whole family for $1.50. It was amazing. But then I transitioned into shopping mode and walked through IKEA and found all the things that I wanted to buy. Because at Ikea, they've set up their showroom so that you can see what it would look like in your house. They've got everything built. The beds, the bunk bed, the curtains. They've got, you know, kitchenettes and light, lighting fixtures and linen, cutlery and kitchenware. It's amazing. is amazing. But I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to buy anything. I found something I liked. Nadia found something she liked and something that we would like for the house. We just moved here, we needed to buy a whole bunch of furniture and things for the home. And I couldn't figure out where the price tag was. How do I actually pay? There's three levels in Ikea and it's split up into different segments. And if you don't know what is happening at Ikea, if you don't know how it works, it is a maze. It occurred to me though, right at the end, as I left, as I walked through the checkout area, it occurred to me that I was trying to shop and purchase items from the showroom and I hadn't seen the warehouse. Doesn't that sound eerily familiar to what it is that we're talking about today? That we are trying to shop from the showroom in people's lives where everything looks perfect and nobody wants to show the warehouse. You see, the warehouse is when you get into the nuances of relationships. The warehouse is where real talk takes place. But we don't want to get involved in real talk. We don't want to get involved in the nuance of the rubber hitting the road in our faith. We don't want to engage in those conversations. We just want to have a showroom mentality where all you see of my life is what is good. You've taken a photo before. You check it. You take another one. 
you check it, you take a third one, you run it through a filter, you change the app, you get the lighting right. Chris Spencer, who's our videographer and, photog- and one of our key photographers in the church, or if he's not a key photographer in the church, he's a brilliant photographer, took a photo of me the other day running along the canal with Landon and Tyler. What a great photo. It looked amazing. Just the most Canadian photo I've ever been a part of. And the oranges, I was wearing a, like a salmon coral kind of orange uh, jacket, and I had these orange shorts, which I'm famous for. And that popped in the photo. But it also meant that Tyler's hair, now Tyler doesn't have ginger hair, but in the photo, his hair looked like Sean White. Why? Because sometimes when you take a photo and the exposure and the colors are different and some things pop off more than you want, in the world where we want to make ourselves look the best possible, we're going to go back through that app, change the brightness, change the contrast. He sent me a video the other week, which was a segment of a sermon that we used to promote the YouTube channel. So if people aren't in church, or people you know, aren't engaging with what we're doing, they go, oh yeah, local church has got a YouTube channel. And it helps get those numbers up so we can get the influence of the messages that we believe God is speaking out to as many people as possible. And I said, dude, great. I look very pale though. There's two Levi's, did you know that? Summer Levi and winter Levi, two of them. I'm what we call in New Zealand a half caste. I'm part indigenous and European. My, my dad's family's from England. Mum's family's from, they're indigenous to New Zealand. So in the summertime, I can, I color up quite nicely. Get a little tan. I enjoy that. But then in the wintertime, all of that pigment just disappears and I turn into a pale pasty. So Chris sends this video. I was like, hey, it's great, man. A little pale. <laughs> Look, looking a little pale out there, you know. A bit of color maybe. And he goes, don't worry, I got you. Does his magic, comes back. I was like, yeah. Not quite summer Levi, but certainly not middle of February Levi. My point is this, these are all examples of showroom mentality. Why not just show people exactly what it is that we look like? Not so much photos, although that's a good example, not so much videos, although that's a good example, but our lives, vulnerable, transparent, authentic, that people would see what's in our life and how we're trying to juggle our faith and walk it out with Jesus. For every parent who's got a kid who's between the age of five and 15. The conversations we have with our kids before church, I wish we had a recording of all of these conversations and we could share them publicly. They'd be hilarious. The amount of extortion and bribery, manipulation, best dressed award gifts that we give to our kids to encourage them to be on their best possible behavior in church is brilliant. Why? Because we have a showroom mentality and I think the world is sick of it. And I think people have had enough. I think people are no longer interested in the Ikea showroom. I think we want to see the warehouse. I think people want to see how you work out your life and your faith. Tell me about the books. Do you struggle to read? How do you get through so many? Why don't you read enough? What are you watching? How is this impacting your life? What verse is speaking to you? Can I pray for you? What do you struggle with? What are challenges in your life? Is your marriage weird just like mine? And be able to engage in the the visceral nature of our faith being covered in the dust of our rabbi and or at least trying to be. Trying to work it out, trying to walk it out. But that we would do this together in an authentic way. People want to see the warehouse, not just the showroom. Recently, I was running with some friends and one of them had said a few weeks earlier, hey, on this next run that we have, can we share about one another's blind spots? In fact, he said, just share about mine. Just tell me what mine are. I'm keen to know. We've been journeying together. We're friends. 
I want to improve as a person. What a bold question and a bold statement and ask that is of your friends to say, hey, we are intimate. We are friends. We do life. We are brothers. But I'm trying to grow. Can you help me see some things that I maybe can't see? That in the context of the friendship that we have as, as a group, that was the perfect question to ask. And it ended up being one of the best runs I've had all year. That is discipleship. So as a believer, what's next for me? What, what does the baton exchange with Jesus look like? How do I make disciples of the world? How can I take my Ikea showroom versus warehouse illustration and land it in my relationships with others? Most people at this point, in my experience of being a Christian, are absolutely dead in the water, lost, marooned. They don't know what to do or where to start. We're hesitant, we're cautious, we're discouraged. If I'm going to give you some take-homes today, write this down. Make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. That's the take-home, isn't it? Because that's what he says. He's like, all right, guys, it's been great. I was born, um, you know, died, rose again. I'm about to ascend, but before I go, go and make disciples. Hey, see you later. Take it easy. A friend of mine was at a Raptors game. And they had one, one friend was uh, with his work colleagues at the front, like 100 level, and another couple in the 300 levels. And when the work colleagues of the friend down the bottom left, he texted me and said, hey, come down, come down with me. So the three of them were watching in the 100 level, like fourth quarter Raptors. I think it was a Raptors-Celtics game. Raptors, by the way, at the time of recording, are on an eight-game win streak. I'm just saying. Um, I'm not saying they've been the best possible version of themselves since I got to Canada, but the stats would reveal that that's probably true. And so they come down. And then right at the end, the guy that invited them down, he was ready to leave. And rather than saying, hey, guys, you know, um, thanks for everything. And, you know, it was great hanging. We'll see you later. He just kind of goes, all right, good game, mate. And then just walked off. And the, my, the other friends were like, wait, did you just go to the washroom? Or like, is he coming back? Like, what's the story? And th- sometimes I feel like that's like with Jesus. He's like, all right, guys, go and make disciples of all nations. So take it easy. We'll see you later. And then he just exits stage left. Like he, he, he says, make disciples, make disciples. So how do, how do we do that? <laughs> how does the rubber hit the road? In my experience, and this is what I want to share with you today. In my experience, there are five traits of great disciple makers. And I want to share those traits with you. Of all the people that I've met that have discipled me, mentors, significant others, key people in my life, pastors, leaders, friends, you know, one of the great moments of discipleship I ever had was from my roommates. We have a, I was dating Nadia at the time. We weren't engaged or married. And we were out having a date night. And I got home, but I got home at like 2 a.m. And the reason I got home at 2 a.m. was we left. I dropped her off at 10.15, so I was going to be home for the 11 p.m. curfew back with the boys at the, at, the, at the apartment, at the flat. But I was so, if you know me, you know sometimes I just can't keep my eyes open. So I'll be watching a movie or hanging out, and I'm so tired that my, my eyelids will be so heavy that I'll just fall asleep. So I'll just go to bed too. If you're ever at my house and I just go to bed, it's not because I don't like you, it's just because I'm tired. And so I pulled over and went to sleep and I slept on the side of the road in my car for three hours. And then I woke up and drove home and the boys the next day were like, so notice you got home pretty late last night. Is everything okay? I was like, yeah, totally. They're like, bro, like you broke curfew. I was like, oh, nah, I fell asleep. And they're like, yeah, sure. I was like, no, no, no. I left at 10, 15. And she was a 30-minute, 35-minute drive from my house. And then I fell asleep in Northland because uh, I was tired. And they're like, okay, like for real, I was like, nah, real talk. That's actually what happened. And they're like, okay, but we just needed to ask. That's discipleship. That's a friend sharpening another friend. 
accountability for things that are from a pre-existing conversation. Here's an aforementioned thing we talked about, help me with this. And then six months later, remember we had that talk? How's that going? That's discipleship. So here are five traits of the best disciple makers that I've ever met and how I think that we could be great just like them. The first one is this, and this might go without saying, but the first thing is this, is they are covered in dust. The best disciple makers, covered in dust. The best disciple makers that I've ever met, it seems like this should go without saying, but it needs to be said. It needs to go with saying that the best disciple makers follow Jesus. That the best disciples of others are themselves being discipled by others and by the rabbi of Nazareth. The best disciples are, are just walking down the road, following Jesus and trying their best to implement their learning, their struggles. They're trying to grow and align their walk and their actions just like you. They're trying to walk the walk and talk the talk. They're trying to do their best just like you. The best disciple makers I know are covered in dust. Luke twenty-two forty-one says that he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond that, knelt down and prayed. This is talking about Jesus. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. This is just before Jesus is crucified. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and he's with his disciples. Remember that? And he's like, can you come pray with me? And they're like, got you. Then they fall asleep. This is around about that time. The Bible says that he withdrew to pray about a stone's throw beyond them. And he knelt down and prayed. A friend of mine, Ryan Harmon, messaged me the other day. He said, bro, this passage is wicked because in the passage, what you see is that Jesus is praying privately, engaging in spiritual disciplines, but he's close enough that they can see what he's doing. Like, isn't that just great leadership? He's, like, he's not like, because you know, you got the sense like Jesus can't just always talk about prayer. He actually has to pray. He's going to engage with the Father, get vision for his life. So he's like, man, I've got to go pray. But he's, he's far enough to get privacy and to pray, but he's close enough that they can see what he's doing so they can go, oh, okay, if I'm going to follow my rabbi, I've got to be a person of prayer in my life. Close enough that they could observe his practices. We want to be like that. We're engaged in people's life, private enough though to engage in spiritual practices, but close enough so that people can see the what? The warehouse of our lives and not just the showroom. They didn't want to just hear more preaching from Jesus, but they want to see how he lived his life. People don't want to just want to get more instruction from you. They don't want to hear more messages from you. They want to see how you live your life. They're covered in the dust of their rabbi. Number two, if you're taking notes, the best disciples I know, best disciple makers on the planet that I've ever met, they actually care about me. The best disciples I've ever encountered actually care about other people. When I'm with them, they're present. When I'm with them, they're interested. I asked this question of some people the other week and Marley responded and she said, in my experience, good disciple makers seem to truly care about what others care about as empathy. They take time to invest in others by learning about their specific struggles, triumphs, desires, and interests. Marley's saying here that the best disciples are high empathy that have put work into the relationship to put themselves in the shoes of the person that they're talking to. Triumphs, struggles, desires, interests. That sounds to me like a great disciple maker. Disciple makers, they truly care. They're great listeners. They're present. 
Caleb Groenewag said this, they listen. He said, first and foremost, they listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. They listen to his voice. They seem in tune with what God is saying, and then they listen to me. Not just to my words, but they read between the lines, he says, the heart behind it. And then at the same time, they listen to God, and when they speak, there's a weight to it, like they speak my language. They get me. They're great listeners, he says. He says, they listen to the Holy Spirit, then they listen to me, but they read between the lines, they listen to the heart and the intent, what I'm trying to say behind the words, and then when they speak, there's weight and wisdom. They're honest, he goes on to say. The best disciple makers I know are honest, he says, about their wins, but about their failures as well, their struggles and their strengths. That sounds to me like a showroom, like a warehouse versus a showroom in Christian to me. For me, authenticity comes from vulnerability, he says. Not that they share everything, but that they share enough that they don't seem somewhere that's unattainable for me. They're real, authentic, honest. And it helps me see what they are running is available for me too. A showroom Christian is a superhero. I can't attain that strength. I can't fly. I can't do those great things, but a warehouse Christian shows me his life. I can see the inner workings of their decision. I can be a part of the day-to-day nature of their lifestyle. If you're taking notes, write this down. They're not formal, but they are always intentional. The best disciples I know are intentional. They're not formal, but they're always intentional. And the best disciples I know, and I want to encourage us to be a great group of disciples in our church, is that they'll use any excuse to build relationship. Like any environment can be a training tool, a game of sport, a board game, a drive in a car, a trip to the grocery store, a coffee downtown. These kind of people are consistent. They're direct, they're clear, they're nurturing, they're prophetic. That's a truth and love kind of person because we're in the grocery aisle, down the granola bar aisle in the grocery store and then we're, we're getting some Cheerios and they begin to talk some truth and love, some real talk. It's these moments where their person is present, they listen, they're honest. It's not formal. It's not sitting around a table all the time, but they're always intentional. People who love you where you are while helping you get to where you need to be. These are the best disciples I've ever met. With these people, the best chats are not always around a table. They're not always in a Bible study, but they're always in an environment where we have a relationship, we have a rapport. The best chats with them might be in the table, but they're not always in a Bible study. This person is highly relational, a locker room type person. Patient, connected. Friend of mine, friend of our church, his name is Fillmore Bold, says this Discipleship happens around the meal and conversation. These people have an uncanny ability to impart wisdom into everyday life. They help people make better decisions in life and ultimately lead to being more like Jesus. And they can help others do the same. Great teachers, he says. They can make the complex simple whether someone has been following Jesus for 20 years or 20 seconds, people can grow through their teaching. I want to be someone who's like that. I want to be a disciple maker that's not formal, but is always intentional. If you're taking notes, write this down. The next thing I would say is this, is that the best disciple makers, the best disciples I've ever come across, they don't shy away from the spiritual. They don't shy away from the spiritual. They're consistently in church, They find ways to share about Jesus. Sometimes they move a little slow in life. 
This is the kind of person that will text you and say this, hey, is there anything that I can be praying for this week? Or hey, I was praying for you and this came to mind. Hey, I was praying for you and the scripture came to the top of mind. Hey, I, I, I was thinking about you this week and I, I wanted to reach out. Is there anything that I can be praying for you for right now? Because I'm praying and I want to engage in prayer for you. They're not afraid to shy away from the spiritual. The supernatural to the best disciples I've ever met comes like second nature. Man, can you pray for me? Of course, man, let's get some oil. Let's baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Have you ever spoken in tongues before? Hey, let me encourage you. Can we take some steps forward in your faith following Jesus? Caleb Gronewag again says this, they are close to God and not afraid to be spiritual. The best disciple makers I know, they don't shy away from challenging me in God, pushing me forward into the things of God, calling out the junk in my life in a grace-filled way. But it also kicks me in the behind to get moving. And all of that is okay because I can see the fruit of it happening in their own life. They aren't afraid to push me in the deep end when I need to learn and swim. This to me speaks of the call-out culture versus the call-me-out culture. I want to be a part of the call-out culture because when you call out something, you're calling something out, the gold from within that person. I'm, I'm calling it out of you. But when you call me out, that to me speaks of embarrassing someone, isolating them in a public scenario. Man, I was called out. You're calling, you're calling me out. This is awkward. But if I could call out the things of God in someone's life, the spiritual things, the dreams, what they have locked up in their heart, I want to be that kind of discipler. And lastly, if you're taking notes, they point me to Jesus and not to themselves. Have you ever had someone preach a message? And when they finish preaching, you're just like amazed at the preacher, you know? And you're like, oh my gosh, that person's the best. When really I wonder if the goal of great preaching is not that you'd be amazed at the preacher, but you'd be amazed at Jesus. Isn't the goal of great preaching to bring it back to him? Didn't the apostle Paul write in those famous words, we preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. Full stop. Period, point blank. That's it. That's all we do. That's our job. To edify and make him the focus. He's the number one goal. Not to be that preacher that when you finish, it's like, oh my gosh, that person was outstanding. No, that Jesus is the one that's outstanding. Great disciples always point me to Jesus and not to themselves. A great disciple is not concerned about the next time we can catch up so they can continue to impart their astounding wisdom into my life. The great disciple is saying, hey, your next step should be to pray, engage, spiritual discipline. You should fast. Hey, go on a 21-day fast. The amount of people who I've talked to, they've got significant challenges. I'm like, yeah, man, go fast and pray. Uh, well, come on, man. Like, What about some natural advice? Yeah, no, maybe not. Maybe in this scenario, you need to fast and pray. You need to lock in and engage in God over a period of time to get his word for your life. These people point me to Jesus and not to themselves. Proverbs 11 verse 30 says, He who wins souls is wise. He who wins souls is wise. Another translation of that same verse says, he who points people to Jesus is wise. He who makes Jesus the number one priority in their life in conversations at the expense of themselves, that is wisdom. And on that note, let me point you to Jesus. I was 13 years old when I first came into a church, came into an environment where someone clearly presented the good news of Jesus to me. I heard it, kind of made sense to me. 
made a decision to follow Christ, and I've never looked back. That to follow Jesus, to walk in relationship with him, to engage in a conversation, we call that prayer, to say, you know what, I might be wrong, I might be distant from God, but I want to get my life right with him, is the best decision that you can make with your life. Now, it's great because the Bible says that in that moment, that as we call upon the name of the Lord, all who do that are saved. And that all who believe in the sent one from the Father, his name is Jesus Christ, that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. Amazing. Eternity in heaven, this is all good news. But it's great because when you pray a prayer like we're about to pray, you get to engage in the start of the journey of following Jesus. And life is better because of him. Following Jesus and learning his nuances and his yoke, the Bible says, his, his way, is the greatest thing that you could do with your life. The greatest amount of energy you could expend is walking with Jesus. And so today, we're going to pray a very simple prayer. Believe that God can forgive us for our sins. We're going to repent. And as we, as we pray that prayer, I'm believing that you could have your whole life turned around through faith in an instant when you pray this prayer today. And so I want to pray the line. You pray it with me. We'll pray it together. It goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I come to you. I need you in my life. I ask you, Forgive me of my sin, and I thank you that you do. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Amen. So proud of you. We'll see you next week. I'm going to hand back to the MCs. Next week, Nadia and I are going to be preaching together. We're going to be talking about two things. Number one, a message called Money, Marriage, and Miscellaneous, which is basically a catch-all of anything that we missed in the last seven weeks. We're also going to be releasing for public consumption online and in person our um, discipleship process as a church that by the time we release it, we would have been working on for maybe six months. So it better be good. So if it's not good, like an early apology, that it didn't live up to your expectations. But I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. It's going to have some practical next steps for every single person in our church. I think you're going to love it. But until then, I'll see you later. We are so glad you joined us for the Local Church Podcast. To get connected, please follow us on social media and check out our website for groups and other ways to get involved.